As we continue in our series, Connected, talking about the different ways, specific ways that the early church connected uh, with one another, with God, and that was real connection, it was lasting connection, and it was those connection points that God used to really grow and, and bless and multiply the church, and so we've been looking at that, seeking to follow that same blueprint here in our century, uh, because if, if we see it working so well for the early church as we, as we do by looking in to the pages of Scripture and Acts, we certainly can apply that um, in many, many ways to our context here today, and that's what we've been seeking to do. And so um, as we continue in this series, we're still in Acts 2.42, and let me read that, and I'll highlight the area of connection that we're going to focus in on today. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We talked about that in our first week. To the fellowship. Spent time focusing on that last week. And now the area of focus this week. To the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread. And to prayer. This isn't regular food. And it's not connected to the fellowship mentioned before that in the, in the list, and like we talked about last week, this is not the fellowship dinners we are used to having together as a church like we do from time to time. It's what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. That's what's being referred to here. That's the breaking of bread that is mentioned. The definite article there is incredibly important. It's not just breaking of bread, it's the breaking of bread. The emphasis is certainly on what the Lord Jesus himself established, and that's what we're going to see as we look further on. Uh, Just by way of example, though, adding to the point that this is not just any fellowship or any regular time of just getting together and and enjoying a meal together, uh, in Acts 27, in the first part of that verse, Acts 20, verse 7, uh, the scripture there says, on the first day of the week, the day that the church Gather. That's why we gather on the first day of the week. It's historic. It's in the pattern of the resurrection. So the church, the body, was gathering in this verse here in Acts chapter 20 on the first day of the week, and, and it says, we assembled to break bread. Again, that's not saying they, they didn't have breakfast together. That's not them staying and having lunch. That's the breaking of bread around the Lord's table. So uh, I just want to emphasize that's what is being mentioned here. That's the connection point. It's connection around the table, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And it's, it's important to note that because it also makes sense that, that this would be a priority of the early church. Uh, you have Peter, you have John, you have James, you have the 11 that were the foundational leaders in the early church. And it wasn't that far removed at all from when they gathered around the first table, the first communion that the Lord Jesus himself established. Jesus established this. He took the Passover meal. He, he pointed to himself as the fulfillment of that. It was really the, the last Passover meal the way it had been done up to that point. There would still be Passover meals, but it was certainly the last that completely pointed ahead to the picture without the picture being fulfilled. Jesus celebrating that Passover with his disciples 
was the fulfillment of it all, and he used it to institute the Lord's Supper. It was an incredible time, uh, something that they certainly would not have forgotten, and they definitely made that a priority, that as they went forward as the church, that that was an important priority for all of them to do. So we need to take a look back and spend some time looking at the first Lord's Supper, the first communion. So look with me at Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. I'll be reading from the CSB translation, just so you are aware of that as you follow along. Verse 14, God's Word says this, When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Right there you see the connection. The Passover always pointed ahead to the ultimate Passover lamb, which Jesus was. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Look, there He is. So all the Passovers from the very beginning in Exodus pointed ahead to Jesus as the Passover lamb. So here he is, the Passover lamb. He's eating this last Passover with his disciples before he goes to the cross to fulfill it. Before he goes to shed his blood as the atoning lamb. An incredible connection there. Absolutely amazing. I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, in other words, uh, I'm going to set a precedent here. As I go to the cross and then beyond that, uh, I want you to continue to observe what I am establishing here, and I want you to do it in remembrance of me. I want you to look back, and I want you to remember all that I did for you, all that I'm about to go and do. I want you to keep remembering. I want you to highlight it. I want you to focus on it. Do this after me, in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You can probably tell from the way I've emphasized that as I've read these things, but just in case you missed it, there are two very important things to focus on at the end of verse 19 and the end of verse 20. In remembrance of me, that's the first thing that's really important to focus on, and the fact that Jesus said this is the new covenant in my blood. In remembrance of me, at the end of verse 19, and the new covenant in my blood in verse 20. Two very important things that were significant, that were earth-shattering, life-changing things, uh, certainly would have been absolutely 
significant and monumental for the disciples and for the early church as they went forward. The reason this is so important, the reason that this was so significant is because of who these people were that Jesus was addressing in the upper room and then who they were that made up the first church. We need to keep in mind that the disciples and the first church were groups of Jewish people that had grown up under the old covenant and all that went with that. So all the sacrificial systems, the priesthood, the the Holy of Holies, all of that, the the Day of Atonement, everything that went with the Old Covenant and the, the Mosaic Law, that's what they knew. That's all they knew. That was their entire life. Everything they were, everything they knew, all they were about, their national identity, everything was under the Old Covenant and under the system of the law. And so, because of that, it would have been very, very natural and very easy for them to return to that system and to depend on it for their identity and acceptance by God rather than depending on Jesus and the new covenant that he ushered in. We know that was a struggle because the Apostle Paul, for example, spent so much time talking about that, right? Don't return to the law. You're under grace. Don't go back to the law and the the way of living under the law. You're under grace. You're free from the law. He spent so much time talking about it. And it's with good reason. Because if they grew up, generation after generation after generation grew up under the old covenant and all that that was, then of course that would be a struggle for them not to keep returning back to that, not to find roots there, not to find their identity there. Good thing we never struggle with anything like that, right? Wink, wink, wink. So what did they need to remember? I mean, that's, that's why Jesus, that's a big reason why he said, do this in remembrance of me. I need you to remember me and what I'm about to do that ushers in all that is going to be new, the new covenant, life in the Spirit rather than life under the law. I want you to remember, remember, remember. Certainly, the disciples, the early church, would, they were not alone in the fact that they had short memories, that they find it hard to remember the important things. We all do. We find it all, all of us, hard to remember the important things, don't we? the things that really matter, the things that we should remember that should uh, drive our lives. We find it hard to remember those things. We have short memories indeed, especially, and unfortunately, when it comes to God and all the things He's done for us. You look at Israel, all through the Old Testament, they would forget constantly all that God had done for them. Like the children of Israel in Exodus. You know, they, they went through the Red Sea, Miracle. They're all alive. The, the sea comes back and crashes over Pharaoh and his army. No more, no more Pharaoh. No more army chasing them. God did that. And they marvel at it. And then not too long after, they're saying, you just brought us out to the wilderness to kill us. Where's the food? Where's the, you know, where's the water? Where, we were better to be back in Egypt as slaves. And on and on that went all through their history. You know, they forget God. 
God brings judgment into their life. They cry out to God. He rescues them. And then it's, okay, what are you going to do for me now? In the New Testament, Jesus sees that all the time. He feeds the 5,000. Wow, this is great. Time goes by, not very, not very much time at all. And then it's, okay, what are you going to do for us now? Show us a sign and we'll believe in you. <laughs> and Jesus, you know, uh, he had to just shake his head and, oy vey, you know. But we're not really that much different at all. We pray, God help me, God give me, God provide for me. He does. We praise Him, we go along a week, maybe if we're lucky, a week. Okay, God, what are you going to do for me now? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? So the question is, okay, they're supposed to remember the, the Lord's Supper that Jesus Himself instituted centered around remembering Him. So the question is, what did they the disciples, the early church there in Acts that was devoted to the breaking of bread, what did they need to remember? What was it about what Jesus did and what was it about their observance of this special Lord's Supper that they needed to remember? And more importantly, what do we need to remember? What do we need to remember? It's actually the same thing. Here's why this is so relevant. Because what the early church needed to remember in their context is what we need to remember in ours. It's this. Only Jesus can provide the complete cleansing we all need. Only Jesus can provide the complete cleansing we all need. He is the perfect purifier that God promised to provide. All the way back in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, He promised there would be a provision for all that Adam and Eve wrecked and the ruin that came in. And all through the Bible, all through the pages of of the Old Testament, it's picturing, it's pointing. There's going to be a provision. There's going to be a provision. There will be a perfect purification. It will be provided. It's going to happen. It's going to come. Jesus is that promise kept. The perfect purifier that God promised to provide. Here's how we know that. Hebrews chapter 9. I'd like for you to look at that with me. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading from the NLT. So it, uh, it likely will sound different in some places from what you have if you have a digital copy of God's Word through an app, version or something, you can just bring up the NLT. Um, but I, I chose this translation for the next two passages just because of how crystal clear it brings out what is being said and what should be emphasized. It really grabs uh, the intention of the author and, and all that was trying to be expressed there in a very, very pointed, unmistakable way. So Hebrews 9, 1-15 through 15, from the NLT, God's Word says this, that first covenant, or the old covenant, that first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, 
And behind the curtain was the second room called the Most Holy Place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. Verse 6, When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. Verse 7, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place. That's where God's presence actually came down and and dwelt. It actually occupied that place. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and don't miss this, and only once a year at the Day of Atonement. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people or for the sins the people had committed in ignorance verse 8 by these regulations so all those regulations attached to all of this under the old covenant by these regulations the holy spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So that old covenant and the old system, it, it was a constant barrier. It maintained a barrier between God and His people. Verse 9. This is, an, this is an illustration pointing to the present time. And that's the time in which this was written. That's the author saying, you know, at the time of this writing, where you are, where we're living, how we're living right now, all of that was an illustration pointing to this present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer, because at the time of this writing in Hebrews, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, it was all still happening. Even though Jesus came, even though he died, even though the curtain split in two, the temple had not been destroyed yet. And so all of those things were still happening. And they were completely empty. Completely empty and unnecessary. That's what the author of Hebrews here is trying to point out. He's writing to, imagine this, Jewish Christians. That's why it's called Hebrews. Letter to the Hebrews. And he's trying to emphasize to them, don't look to the law. Don't depend on the old covenant system. It's done. It's been fulfilled. Look to Jesus. That's why he's saying all of this. For that, uh, verse 9 still, this is, an, this is an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer at this time, present tense, are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies. Physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. I mean, it can't get any more plain than that, right? Then, having said that and pointed out the emptiness of all of that, 
he points to the fulfillment of it all. He points to the fact that Jesus is the perfect purifier. Verse 11. So, Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. Side note, the earthly tabernacle that Moses was commanded to construct, the reason that it had such precise detail, the blueprints that he was given, were from the, the, the pure, the perfect, the original tabernacle in heaven. It was everything Moses had to make the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the one in heaven. Think about that for a while. Mind-blowing. Incredible. So, he entered that more perfect tabernacle in heaven, not made by human hands, not part of this created world. Verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most perfect holy place, the heavenly most holy place, once for all time. Once for all time. And secured our redemption. That includes you and me today. All who come to Christ. Secured our redemption forever. In verse 13, under the old system, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But that's as far as it went. Verse 14. Look at this great, great contrast. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, Christ offered Himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why He is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Hallelujah. So it's no wonder that the church in Acts made it such a priority to do what Jesus said at the first communion, to remember Him and the way He inaugurated the new covenant. See, just like the old covenant... The Old Covenant was inaugurated by blood. Had to be. There was a death. There was blood. That was how the Old Covenant was was inaugurated and it was instituted. The New Covenant, likewise, had to be inaugurated by blood. But it wasn't by the blood of, as as was said here in Hebrews, it wasn't by the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb or, or anything like that. It was by the perfect blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus the one which the Old Covenant and all that was in it pointed to. So of course, of course the church, the first church, made it a priority to do what Jesus said, remember me and and focus on 
the blood of the new covenant, which is my blood. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this only had relevance to the Jewish Christians in the first century. I've emphasized the fact that they were Jewish Christians and and being so closely tied to that Jewish identity, the Jewish covenant, the Jewish law, living right there in in that window of time that Jesus had come and died and went back to heaven. I mean, they were in a very a very fragile time. And I've emphasized that. And so, of course, we understand the, the relevance that this had for them, but, but please don't make the mistake of thinking that it only had relevance to the Jewish Christians in the first century. It may have been easier for them to drift back into the old covenant, into the law, the way of doing things in that way for obvious reasons, because of the, the time They were so close to that. That's all they had known from all of their lives for generations. So it it, it probably was easier for them. But it's pretty easy for us to drift into a legalistic way of living today. We may be under the new covenant, and we are. But we often cling to a new law. We often cling to a new law. We make a new law for ourselves very easily. And we cling to it. And we look to it. And we rely on it. We depend on on a man-made law and a whole new set of traditions many times over and above and beyond all that Jesus has made true of us. All that He has set us free for. There's another reason that we need to follow the first church's example and make sure that we too are devoted to the breaking of the bread of the Lord's Supper. There's another important thing about what Jesus accomplished that we need to recognize and remember. And that's this. Here it is. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless and He brings the outcast into God's kingdom. I hope, I hope... I hope you are are thrilled at that realization. I hope that is your realization. I hope that you have personally stepped into that. That you are personally experiencing that reality. That Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. That He brings the outcast into God's kingdom. Here's why I said it that way. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I'll also be reading this from the NLT shows us how that is true and, and how important that is. Ephesians 2.11-13, the Apostle Paul says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles, so everybody here should, all of our attention should be up, our, our heads should be up, we should, we should hear that, you know, because that's us. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders, You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. 
and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So that was, that was the predicament that every Gentile found themselves in. That was what was true of every Gentile. It was only for the Jew. And then, verse 13. I love it every time in Scripture. And Paul is notorious for this. This, this is a huge, huge uh, part of how Paul writes whenever he does. He loves the, the magnificent contrast. You know, he gives you the situation. He gives you the predicament. He paints a very realistic picture. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, try to hide the gravity of the situation and the doom and the gloom. And he emphasizes it all. And then he introduces this glorious contrast. Here it is. So all of that was true. Excluded. Cast, you know, outcast. Didn't know the covenant promises. Without God. Without hope. I mean, heavy, heavy stuff, right? But verse 13. But now... You have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. That is your salvation story, Christian. That's why we can sing Amazing Grace. Because everything up to verse 13... That would be true of us today too if it were not for Christ. Here's what that tells us. Here's what that shows us. It screams this. We don't belong here in what, what all, the, all that we read about salvation, the Gospel, all that the early church was able to experience, the salvation story, the reality of salvation. We don't belong there. We don't belong in God's kingdom. We don't belong in His family. By rights, by rights, we should never be what we have been made. And by rights, we should never have what we have received. We're, we're really big on rights as American Christians. You know, the Bill of Rights and all of that that we have. We're so focused on what we have in our country's constitution. And we're so focused on you know, the rights we have as American citizens. And I'm thankful for those rights. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have under our, our national identity and under our constitution and all that. I mean, praise God for that. But don't make the grave mistake of applying what we have as a country to how it should be as a Christian citizen in the kingdom of God. We don't have any rights as Christians except for judgment. That's all that is ours by rights. Everything we know and have as a Christian, it's not by right, it's by grace. And many, many times we can confuse and blur the two, especially because of where we live and being American Christians. And many times that is the problem. We, we view ourselves as Americans first and Christians second. We need to flip the lid on that. We need to be Christians first, 
citizens of the kingdom of heaven first that happen to live in America. That's how it should be. Because in the kingdom of God, in the plan of redemption, the reality of the gospel, we by rights just don't belong. And we never ever should be able to take hold of what we've been able to take hold of. It's all by free grace that Jesus paid with his life to provide. See, the the grace that we have, it's free. It's free grace. Hallelujah. But that doesn't mean that it didn't cost someone something. It did. It cost Jesus. He's the someone. And it cost him everything to give us the free grace. Jesus paid with his life to provide it. And that's what we remember at this table. And that's what we need to remember every moment of our lives. It's all the blood of Jesus, and it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go into the Lord's table together um, as the song plays to get us in that mindset of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Gentlemen, you can come on down to the table as the song plays soon as I soon as I pray. Lord Jesus, you you gave your life to give us life. The grace that we have, it is amazing, it is astounding. And it is free to us. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. But it's only free to us because you paid for it. You paid for it with your life. You paid for it with your blood, the perfect blood that instituted, inaugurated an eternal and new covenant. Thank you. I pray as we seek to focus on and remember what you did for us, we we now apply your word. We follow in the pattern of the early church and we do remember. We look back and we remember You. We remember You, O Lord. We remember Your cross, Your sacrifice. We remember Your perfect blood that didn't just cleanse us from sin, but brought us into and under the new covenant of grace. But may we do more than just take a, a cup of juice and a wafer May we take this out with us and indeed proclaim your death, your life, until you come. We thank you and we praise you all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.